It's all good. So in, ter- in terms of telling people um, who you are first off and what you do in powerlifting, a little bit of an intro. Okay. Um, my name's Sean Pro, and I'm a powerlifting coach in Ireland. Um, I started coaching, I guess, around 2015. Um, and I've been to four world championships with Ireland and three European championships. I've coached uh, a 63 lifter to a European record in 2018, which was 178 kilos, and we took that off in a summer over. Um, before that, I was involved in MMA for years, um, since 2008. So I've done that for a while, and then I decided I have to get into hard sport, <laughs> which is the part of it. It's, it, you know, it's funny. Um... I didn't know that you were in MMA, and some people, I've talked to other people from Ireland, and they were like, oh shit, I didn't know he's a professional MMA fighter. Like, this is, yeah. well, I guess, I mean, you wouldn't just know, just like, unless you bring it out, but um, let's talk about that a hot minute, because anyone who listens to podcast knows I, I freaking love MMA and love the UFC, but okay. how did you, so coming up, when you were younger, were you always a martial arts, or what sports were you into? Um, no, it wasn't into any sports. I, I was just sort of an overweight kid, like Rory. And uh, I just got into MMA when I was 22. And basically what I've done was I watched the Ultimate Fighter finale, you know, Griffin of Honor. Yeah. Well, that, that was just, that was it. It was like, you know, when, when you watch that and you see those guys go toe-to-toe for three rounds, it's like, i got to get myself some of that. And uh, after that, I just signed up to a local MMA class because back in 2007, it, it, it wasn't happening here. You know, MMA was still in the dark ages. So there was no Conor McGregor. Well, there was, but he was like on the local level. So I just decided to join, join up in the gym and do a few classes. And man, I got my ass kicked for the first year in that part. Well, it's, so, I mean, it's true. I remember um, the UFC before the, the Stephen Bonner fight um, and uh, Forrest Griffin fight in, in the, it was the reality TV show, The Ultimate Fighter finale. And yeah. no joke, Dana White said, we were about to go bankrupt, pack it up. This was like a last ditch. If this doesn't work, as a matter of fact, no networks even wanted to pay for it. So the UFC paid with their own money for the entire production, which is very rare. Um, for, yeah. the, for a promotion to do that. And they were essentially like, if this doesn't work, that's it. That's a wrap. This has to work. And that, when that fight happened, it was like, I swear to God, man, it was like a freaking Rocky movie. Like, I remember yeah. watching this with friends being, in, and like you said, buddies who weren't even into, into MMA were like, oh my God. It was like the dramatic back and forth from the first bell to the last bell ending it was awe-inspiring, and Dana White said that one fight literally propelled UFC and made it what it is today, and, and it, I, they, like, some, uh, I think they put that fight into the Hall of Fame or something to, yeah. you know, uh, commemorate it or whatever, and uh, yeah. total turnaround. After that, the broadcasters were like, okay, not only are we going to pay, we want to book for X amount of seasons, pay-per-views blew up. Um, sponsorship deals those dudes became stars it, it was crazy man. yeah it was amazing and you know like it says I, I watched a documentary on on that that particular thing and it was like the Fertitta brothers approached Dana White and was 
the most likely cut the same year we made it. We might want to buy into this product, BLC, in 2000. So they bought into it for two million, and then they sold it for 400, 400 billion, was it? No, oh, four billion. billion. Four billion, yeah. Because, because straight away, that, he got 10% of that deal as well, so he got the 400 billion. Yeah. That's, that's what I guess that was. Which, so we done all right. Yeah, to say the least, but it's crazy. Yeah, they bought it for two million, which, I mean, all right, it sounds like a lot, but when you're talking about sports promotion, to buy something for two million is peanuts. That's nothing. Yeah. Whereas to turn around and sell it for four billion, I mean, I mean, I can't do the math in terms of the ROI yeah. on their investment. But holy shit! And but there, was, there was weeks. I mean, it's one of those success stories that people talk about, right? Where there was so many weeks the Fertitta brothers were turning around to Dana, being like, "Dude, my dude, we're gonna have to pull out soon. Something has to happen here." And Dana's like, yeah. give me a little more time. Give me a little more time. And then um, that's when back to the wall, he's like, fuck it. If this, we might as well throw some money in for the production of this reality TV show because we're done anyway. It's like, let's yeah. just do one last ditch effort. We've, it's almost like chasing bad money in poker where you've already sunk in so much money. You're like, what's a little bit more? I've already sunk in this many million. What's a little bit more? And then eventually they're like, this better fucking work. Or that's it. Yeah. And then uh, and boom. So when you so when you saw that, what what was um, MMA like in Ireland? It, it's it was in the dark ages. I mean, I remember one of my first my first fight, and I got weighed in because it was the same day weigh-in. And I remember there was no social media, no Facebook, no Instagram. It was just like who am I fighting? You were looking around the room and you were sort of trying to match yourself up with a guy your size. So you want maybe it's him? I hope it's not him. He can strike. You know, everyone, everyone that uh, warmed up this year were in, they're ready to walk out. You, you literally found out who your opponent was as you were walking out when you oh, see them in the, in damn, the ring. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and you were, so, um, did you have an amateur career first or you just turned pro right off the bat? No, I had an amateur career. So I had like 14 fights amateur and two fight, one fight pro. So I had an amateur career right up from 2008 until around 2012. Now I had a couple of pro fights. Mm-hmm. So my record was, I think we lost two fights all together. So having 12 and 12 wins, two losses, something like this. No, no shit. And were you primarily, yeah. were you primarily like, did you like grappling, striking? What was your thing? So my thing was to, to grade my opponent's style. Um, I wasn't the, the most technical striker or grappler. But what I was good at is I had an engine, so my, my plan always was to, you know, beat them into the ground until they give up, and then that was it. You know, so wrestling, I love wrestling, and I'm a big amateur wrestling fan and WWE fan, <laughs> so <laughs> I love the WWE, but I actually love the wrestling, the aspect of wrestling is good because it's who has who has more grind, who, who's willing to go to the end the most. Like, if you're going to quit easy, it's going to be an easy fight. But if you're going to work hard, and it, it's all down to the will, who's going to give up first? And I learned that you you just don't get taught that. You, you learn that through experience, you know. And going away to America and stuff like really taught me because you were like talking about getting dropped right in the deep end. That was an experience. How, so how did this end up happening? Did you just decide, um, fuck it, I'm going to leave Ireland and go to the U.S.? Because the U.S. was like, is probably still the mecca for MMA. 
uh, in terms yeah. of the training camps and the super camps that got in the U.S. So what camp did you go to? And what, how did this happen where you're just like, I'm going to, to the U.S.? Um, so around 2008, I bought, I love Matthews. So basically, whenever I was a fair, I wanted to, at the time, Matthews was the best welterweight in the world. So I was like, fuck it, I want to be the guy guy. So I, I, wrestling was always his strong point. He was the B1 All-American. So I bought, a, I bought his autobiography in 2008. And then me and a buddy went to UFC 85, Hughes versus Alves. And he lost by TK on the second round, I believe. And I was like, I got to get over to America and just experience it. So I started doing a bit of research and it turned out that, that Matt Hughes, Robbie Lawler, uh, Matt Pena, Mark Fury, the boxing wrestling coach, opened up a new gym and they were offering fight camps for anybody from national fighters to international fighters. So I was like, fuck it, let's go. And if I'm going to be in the summer, I'm going to be in the summer. So next thing I booked my flights and I got in touch with the, the GM of the of the the camp and he was like yeah come over so three months later I'm there and so did, like, did you have a day job did you have to quit your day job for a little while how long were you over there yeah so I was working in the hospital as like a porter so it wasn't it wasn't a career so it was just a job to get back so basically you know saved up enough money to go and you know I left and I went over there and that was it. So you, did you, you quit your job? Yeah. Dude, you went Fuck. all in. You went all I'm in. All in. I'm all in. And, I'm all in. Yeah. And when you showed up, how long were you in this fight camp for? Three months. Three months, right? And when I got there, no no Facebook, no Instagram. You're just, this is your room. And then if you're not screaming, you're in your room. No TV. No nothing. <laughs> So this is how tough is that mentally though? That basically is the reality TV show they had, where they just put a bunch of dudes yeah. into a house and made them fight. Yeah. But you were fighting like those are absolute killers. Yeah, like I remember my so my first experience was I walked into the gym and they were doing MMA sparring. So that's basically it's not the two ounce, it's not the four ounce gloves at the work in the in, in the fights, but it's six ounce. And you have your shin pads and everything else that, and your head guards. And they were like, yeah, like, so you're, my first time in, it was like five minutes by five rounds. Did I think I only done two minutes, two minute rounds back home. So I was like, fuck me. So I got in and I was, I was, I was uh, going with this dude and he looked really tough. And he just took me down 30 seconds in. And just beat the fuck with me for like four minutes and thirty seconds. <laughs> Holy smokes, man! And he gave me cauliflower. I got a cauliflower here, dude. That's the that's the worst feeling in the world because you, when you see cauliflower ears, you're like, he must be a wrestler. But see when you first get him, it's literally fresh blood in your ear, and if you even touch it, it's just so sensitive. So you have to get that shit hardened up before you can, you know, before you can continue the training but because you have to be tough and you just have to take it you get shots on the air all the time but that was that was a crazy experience and then after he went oh yeah my name's Ken you know he's such a nice guy he's like my name's Ken and uh, 
Mr. Meat Jacket on the other floor and stuff. And turned out that that dude was like a collegiate wrestler and a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu brain belt. I'm an amateur, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white boy coming from Ireland, going, I'm just throwing myself in the deep end. I'm like, I need to get out of here. But, but I didn't stay for the, for the time, three months. And you, so you, this is like a daily grind for you? Like, you just wake up, go downstairs, and what? They're just like throwing your headgear and you're scrapping? So, no, it was structured to morning sessions was always conditioning. So you've got your conditioning in the mornings. Then you don't make a technical class in the afternoon. Sometimes it was wrestling, sometimes it was boxing. And then you were sparring in the evening. So you were doing three, three sessions a day, five times a week. And the funniest... Yeah. Dude, that sounds absolutely insane, though. How did your body keep up with something like that? It was screaming in the, in the first week. So after the first sort of couple of sessions, I was like, I think I've made a mistake. And I was like, I think and it's so emotional because it's like, did you ever see that moment where you're like, have I done the right thing? But it just turns out that you just have to pass that. You know, once you get past that and your body becomes used to it, then it's, it's all good. But a funny story was Hughes, Matt Hughes was in the talk. Matt Hughes would have not took the classes, the conditioning sessions, but sometimes he would. And one day I was I was fucked. And I, I, I decided I'm gonna skip I'm gonna skip this morning this morning's class, right? So I didn't turn my alarm on. And I woke up to my door getting banged. Like, and it's one, it's one of the guys, and they're like, you dude's back past the earth, he's pissed. He's pissed. And I got on me and I ran down, and he's like, you just made all these guys, you just made all these guys do 30 minutes extra work by running around this building. They're going to pay you back to later on in sparring class. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, shit, man. So you're yeah. like a marked man comes because you slept in. Dude, this is, this is exactly like you hear like in military movies. First off, that's that sounds like hell week. And then if you yeah. if you step up out of line, the sergeant makes everybody turn on you. Yeah, pretty much. So what happened in sparring? And what did Matt confront you about that? Matt Hughes? Dude, this is one of the greatest welterweight champions of all time, Matt Hughes. Yeah. It is, yeah. No, we we just got the sparring and it was like just normal like sparring, getting the shit beat out of me. That first four four first four weeks. You know, I had to learn the hard way. It's it's not back in Ireland, like it says it was the dark ages, so we were just we were just getting getting into it. Literally learning how to do a triangle, basic triangle, how to do a basic armbar. These these fuckers were like four or five years into the game. So you put your four or five years experience versus sort of like less than six months. It's way different when you think of it. Yeah. But but where we were um, it's so we're, you know we're on the border of Illinois and Missouri, so we're about twenty minute drive from East St. Louis, and it's one of the it's it's one of the biggest crime capitals in the United States. And one of the, one one of the like times that I I remember very vividly was there was a train stop and there was a body on the track. I, I shit you not, dude. There was a body on the track, and I said, I said to the GM, "What's all, what's all this about?" And he went, "Ah, don't worry. Like we get that stuff all the time. Someone jump. Like just get the training and be good. It'd be all good." Holy what? So they were yeah. like, 
for that, so there's a body on the tracks. It, yeah. it was the bo- It was like a dead body, obviously. Dude wasn't just laying yeah. there waiting. No, it was a dead body, and but it was about a minute down the road. So we were so the the fight camp. They they actually bought an old military base. So it's like acres of land, and they turned one of the big warehouses into a, a super gym almost. So it had mats. You had a weighted area where people were lifting, had a cardio area, had a boxing ring, had a boxing bag. So it was like everything that you needed. And then about 200 yards, 200 yards away was where the, the, the dorms were. And then that was it. Like for meds and meds, it, there was nothing. It was like you were in, it was like someone just lifted you and trapped you in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, go fight, go, go train. And then, and then at the weekends, it was, it was crazy. Like, you know, because go ahead. how is it psychologically though? Like, we'll get to the weekends because I'm sure fighters blowing off steam with all that stress and everything must be crazy. Yeah. But psychologically speaking, look, we're dealing with lockdown and isolation right now, and it feels a little crazy. Like everyone's talking yeah. about. Ellis um, McLean just put a really good post up talking about how he realized. You know, initially you're like, I like being a lone wolf. I like being kind of secluded, isolated, whatever. And then a few weeks into ice, um, actual isolation, lockdown, you're like, maybe I don't like this as much. Like, it affects people more than they think. I can't imagine being... So you're, like, isolated. There, there is no social media. You're away from home, away from friends, away from everybody you know. Um, you're away from, like, normal social settings you would have at home, like going to the mall, going to the movies, going yeah. to whatever, restaurants and shit. You're around people you don't know at all, dropped in a house in the middle of nowhere, Every morning you wake up and train and go through hell and fatigue, getting beat up by like by like killers in the cage, throwing on gloves the whole night. That is gonna make or break you, my like how, psychologically speaking. How intense was that? Like I wish you would have had like even if you could video blog or did you keep diaries or anything? Like how how tough did that get psychologically at points? Yeah, it get really tough. I mean, I remember looking at my phone and my dad says. I got a message from my dad, and I was like, I haven't heard from you in like 14 days, is everything okay? And I just text back, yeah, everything's good, I'll be okay, I'm getting for it in my own way, you know? But psychologically, so there was nothing to do except train. So even if, you, even if you know, you were getting hammered, you know, the only place to go was the gym. So maybe, maybe they were sad with that for a reason, that, you know, you, it, you're not going to sit in your room looking at four walls. Number one, you pay a lot of money to be there. Number two, you know, it, it would just suck. So the only place to go was 200 yards away into the gym. You know, so that that's basically Monday to Friday for 12 weeks, three months is what we're done. And, and how many dudes were in this dorm with you? Um, there was probably... Over 20 at one stage. Holy smokes, man. Yeah, yeah. It's like a fight college or something. Yeah, it get crazy. And, you know, when you're in a dorm with 20 guys, it's like, there's going to be some ego, ego in there. And there was. Well, like, I'm picturing, like, 20 alpha males, and there's going to be dudes walking around with a chest out trying to alpha other people. Yeah. And, like, how wild would it get in there? Like, clashing of tempers and... People on edge like that. I remember one weekend, everyone had a few beers, 
and we get back and everyone's just happy. Yeah, like I kicked your ass in, in sparring this week, and he, and he was like, Yeah, man, just out of the blue, he went, Hey, do you think that's funny? Like, how about you follow me in the laundry room? And he was like, Let's go, let's go. And everyone had to calm down, like, it was crazy. Holy shit, so they're gonna throw down in the laundry room? Yeah. But it happened a few, a few times because I remember I'd say it on the field there was that would happen a lot like people would have just been drunk as shit and when I grappled on the on the grass at like crazy hours like 1am and stuff yeah but that's yeah. the thing like so you're gonna do things like drink to blow off steam especially when that kind of pressure cooking situation but for dudes like that when they're under mental duress like blowing off steam and they're drunk, and then you start exchanging like grapp- even if it's grappling, man, you're not throwing punches. That adrenaline kicks in, and that's when things are gonna turn real. Yeah. And who's exactly. who's gonna police these fellas? Who's around? Was there somebody there who's gonna stop it? It's like <laughs> you have designated trappers who don't who don't drink and drive, so you have to have designated referees, right? <laughs> <laughs> who who are some of the dudes? Um, big name dudes that I probably know that you would have sparred with. Um, these guys didn't stay in the dorms, but you probably would have known. Like Robbie Lawler would be the most notable. Dude, he's a, yeah, the welterweight champion of the world. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know. I heard of him, and you had to spar him. Yeah, I mean, he must have been about twenty six, twenty. It was during Elite XC. It was his run with Elite XC. So it was post it was post the first run in the UFC. So it's when Elite XC was run. So he was just learning his craft, man. You know, I, I remember going wanting to spar, but I was like, fuck it, I'm, I want to get the opportunity to spar this guy. And I remember the whole time thinking that like I, I know he's gonna whip, I know he's gonna whip me, right? But just don't let him drop it. That was my plan. Don't get trapped in this rant. What do you mean by trapped? When you say don't let him drop, don't let him get your body shot. Drop. Okay, okay. Like get, get trapped. So don't let him like hit your body shot where you fall to your knee. And even if it hurts, just try and have the best poker face you can. Like roll with it. And then after he says that guy's either really dumb. <laughs> he almost he says that guy's either really tough or really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Lawler said that. Yeah, but he's he, he was a joker. You know, he, he's a good guy. Did, I was, you know. Did you know at the time that he was going to become a UFC champion with all those successful defenses and all those mega fights? Like, did not like, obviously you wouldn't know he's going to be UFC champion. Did everyone think? This guy's special and he's going places. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he was the he was the popular guy around. He, he would have been around more than like Hughes would have been because Hughes had to travel like two hours. He was a two-hour commute from Hillsborough. So he, I think Lawler would have lived closer, so he would have been down a lot more. Um, and he would have jumped in and sparred the guys. But yeah, I think everyone knew that he was special and he was one of the places. Mm. So after this, um, how did you end up jumping from MMA to powerlifting? How did, did that happen like soon afterwards? Were you lifting at the time even? 
Um, no, I mean, my sort of introduction to powerlifting was through my wife. She wanted to do a meet, and you know, I decided to pull the program off the internet at the time, and you know, we just sort of went with it. We didn't know any rules, we didn't know you had to, you know, squat hip below knee or anything like that. We just, we just showed up, and you know, we just showed up and hoped for the best. And but after that, I think we just sort of got into it, and I started coaching a few people. Um, we got to a national championship in 2016, and then we, we obviously qualified to go to Texas. So that was whenever I was hooked on the sport, because obviously I went into the the warm-up room in Texas, and it was like it was like walking down like a, a factory compared to what I seen before. It was crazy. You had you had you had Kim Walford getting her bar loaded by her team, you know, when she was lifting for the USA and you had people like Screamer who was who was there as well. But I remember going to Texas and I was like, um, I knew Ray because of the SBB thing and I knew Kim because she was, you know, the GOAT. But I didn't know anybody else. And there was a funny a funny exchange and not exchange, but a funny memory I have of being in the warm-up area in Texas. And you know where it was, you know the way it was like it was away from everywhere else. Yeah. In Texas. So I saw a screamer, but I didn't know who he was. So I went up and was like, I'm gonna go up and introduce myself this day. He looks like he looks like a fun guy. So I walked up and I shook his hand and you know, I what's your name? <laughs> and he was like, Oh, I'm Steven. You know, he was a really nice guy. Like, he's a nice guy, but then he has that alter ego of Screamer who goes crazy on the platform. But then after that, like obviously, you know, the Hank Gibbs, that's what that's what got me hooked the part of them. Just seeing the just seeing the emotion, the hype in the crowd. Did, um, so leading into the twenty sixteen Killian World Championships. You you were like following these guys on social media or like what was what was powerlifting like in in Ireland at the time before Hack Gibbs before 2016 because it's obviously powerlifting as a whole has grown a lot in the last four years but yeah. at, the, at the time when you joined it so what what was the first year first off timeline wise what was the first year you got involved in powerlifting and what was the lay of the land at the time so. I got involved in powerlifting, in Irish powerlifting in 2015, but they only became a federation in 2015 as well, or sorry, yeah, 2015. So I've been pretty much with that federation from then until now, so we've grown together. Um, but it was in the dark ages as well, like it was, you know, people were just going to meets and going, like, three squats, three batches, three deadlifts. There was none of the sort of battles and, you know, hate. There was nothing like that. It was just people were going to meets and trying to improve on their total. Mm-hmm. There was nothing really going on with it. I mean, the first meet that the Federation that I lived with ever had, ever put together was 39 people across males and females. Oh, yeah, it was, it was uh, there wasn't that many. And then when you look at a diet, it's like there's at least two full days of 60 plus people. Holy so it's grown up. 
Yeah, it's got huge since then. And so going into the IPF World Championships, you didn't really know what to expect at all. Like you didn't know, did you even know who Hack and Gibbs were? No. Holy <laughs> smokes, man. Oh, that's crazy. So when you got there and you see the SBD posters with them eyeballing each other in, in the showdown came in the, I remember, like I was there and it was like standing room only. When it was Hack Gibbs for the rest of the championships, there was people there who, who had some kind of association affiliation with somebody lifting, right? And you got a flight full of lifters, so there's enough people. But when it was Hack Gibbs, it was straight up standing room only. Like, you could tell something's about to happen. And even if you didn't know, like, yourself ahead of time um, who these guys were, the resumes, etc., and seeing the collision course they were going to have, there was, like, a vibe that week and that day when it finally came down. I remember John Hack being in the, in the crowd and I wanted to get him to do some commentating, like hop in the booth with me, because I was grabbing people from the crowd who were who were powerlifters, like Keith McCunney and shit like that, to do some commentating yeah. with me, right? And um, I had asked Hack leading into the showdown, but I was like, I don't think this is probably going to happen, only because um, he's probably going to be feeling some pressure. Like, you're not going to be loose, right? But I was yeah. saying, whatever, maybe he just wants to stay busy. And he's like, man... I, not right now, man. That this is I'm not into it right now. And you know, if you know John Hack, he's got a personality, man. He's not a shy type. He's a funny dude, outgoing guy, whatever. He'll hop on a podcast, whatever it is. But you could tell for a guy like Hack, I can only imagine because um, in powerlifting we hadn't seen it before, well, like a showdown with the hype like that. I can only imagine for for a dude to show up and everybody's talking about your showdown. Everybody's talking about you, and you're like, holy shit. This is, you know, you, you have no, I don't even know if those guys before they showed up knew how, how it was going to be, how it was going to run down, how all eyeballs on them. And were you in the back when the hack situation happened, um, handling or coaching or whatever, or were you in the crowd watching? I was in the crowd. I remember it really well. I, I was, I think we just finished. We, we had one or two people on that day and. I was about to leave, and then people were like, dude, you don't want to leave. Hack <laughs> Gibbs is coming. So I hung around, and it was just crazy. Like, just just from going from, like, people just applauding in a crowd with very little hype to the place going absolutely crazy. Yeah. It's, probably st- it's probably still the best thing I've seen in powerlifting, you know, crowdways even four years later it's you know it's it's something that I've I've yet to see again maybe it was because he was in the United States and you know Hack was Hack was home, the homeboy but but I mean I haven't seen nothing like that again but it was just crazy well it's it's I mean look if I'm gonna draw this back in a lot of ways that did for you for powerlifting what Stephen Bonner and Forrest Griffin did for you in MMA where and I swear to God, like drawing some parallels here, but it's true. I think like that showdown, which was probably the biggest showdown, and um, and I honestly believe it still is. I agree to this day, it's the biggest one I've covered when I've been in every single world championship since. You know, yeah. and um, I think that thing, that showdown, did so much for the sport, just like the Stephen Bonner versus Forrest Griffin. In terms of selling it, if anybody was interested in power with it, and they tuned on for that, like the numbers yeah. too. For the first time, they had numbers that would rival the heavyweights. Usually, if you tune in for powerlifting, you probably, like yourself previously, didn't know who people were. We didn't have stars, per se, at the time. 
social media was hyping up, but it wasn't like we have now in terms of followers. So if you're going to tune in, you're just tuning in to see some big weights shifted. Who's going to shift the biggest weights? The heavyweights, right? That was yeah. the first time that one of the lighter weight weight classes like had some hype like that where everybody was on board. And if you were wondering, as a sport, would it be entertaining? As a sport, like, okay, if I just want to see some major weights get shifted, I'll watch a heavyweight shift some major weights. But as an actual, that's more of like a freak show exhibition. As an actual sport, could we sell this? Could you actually get people to tune in for entertainment value and be like, oh my God, like the back and forth and the drum and the jockeying around with different, you know, attempt selections and, and whatnot and strategizing and um, the excitement of it right down to the very last deadlift, by the way, with Brett Gibbs pulling for the win and just missing yeah. that lockout. If we were <clears throat> if we were looking for that, could could this happen? Could this turn into yeah. a sport that people could actually watch as fans? That thought that fucking delivered it, man. And, and for us, in terms of the IPF media stream, um, like we were certain, we, we hyped the shit out of that. SBD did an amazing job hyping that. Um, I was helping with the IPF, uh, like I, I still am on the media team and for the Instagram, trying to promote this showdown. And just like Dana White, who was like, we are going all in on this, the Ultimate Fighter reality TV show, and hopefully this works. We really hitched our wagon up to this horse that was the John Hack. Brett Gibbs showed out from SPD, like the biggest sponsor to the IPF itself, to the media team. We were beforehand, like hyping it up. And I did an intro for the first time ever talking about how special this showdown was and what it meant to everybody. It, if it was a dud, it would, or if it just did, if it was like one guy was winning and then he was winning and then he won. If it was like that, I don't know, man. Anyone who would have tuned in be like, let me see. If this is if this is the showdown that's supposed to sell me, let me see. If they tuned in and it didn't work out, we might have been in a different place. I'm sure we could have got ground later on with some other showdown, but it would have hurt. It, it would have hurt. Yeah. Instead, we those boys produced, in my mind, probably the number one showdown I'd seen, and it was an instant classic. And I think like boom after that, you know, yeah, absolutely blew up. And then. Just when Gibbs was coming out for that last deadlift, you've never seen it. The roof almost come off the building. Yeah. You know, everyone just wanted him to get that. I think it was like 327. Yeah. So, it, it, something. It, and he almost got it. It, it wasn't even yeah. right down to the last freaking, like the fact that it was, the outcome of it was in doubt the whole time. I mean, look at, I remember when John Hack came out for that third squat. And it was a monster squat, a world record squat. And um, I remember the hype when he walked up to the bar. And you seen it on his face. And everybody was like, holy, sh- this is a special. Like, we didn't know at the time we would never see Hack again at the IPF World Championships. We had no idea. But we, And he was a, here's another thing. He was a junior lifter. He could have went for the easy money, the sure money, and just went as a junior and smoked the junior world championships and been like, hey, I'm a world champion now. Instead, he chose, I'm going into the Open a year early, and I'm chasing this showdown. And whatever, it was far from a, like a, a sure outcome. I mean, I remember leading into this battle, a lot of people were picking Gibbs and thinking, look at Gibbs. Gibbs is a proven track record. John does not. Gibbs, is, Gibbs has been there several times as a junior, won the World Championships, and the Open won the World Championships. So a lot of people thought when it comes down to meet day and just showing up, so to speak, and then when John hit that third squat, which 
to this day, if you watch it, it was so on the descent. His whole body was reverberating like a fucking like a drum, like yeah. a beat. Like it was, he was in place and tight. He kept tight, but he was reverberating the whole way down. And it looked like, like you could see his nervous system like an engine revving to stay upright, revving to come out of the hole. And it was, and the expression on his face never changed. But you could see his face was like so tense. And it was like, it was awe-inspiring. And once he hit that that squat, it was like, all right, he's the, he's the goods. He's the real deal. The battle is on. Yeah, it was uh it was good to watch, you know. But when you look when you look back and look what came after, it, you know, it, it would be good to see how he developed into the eighty threes in the later years, like 2017, 2018 and so forth. And then obviously with Russ coming in, it changed the game as well. So I think that you know it, it would be good to see them go go toe to toe in twenty seventeen as well, but. We didn't get it, but but I mean, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, I mean, here's one thing that you learn as well. Like when one door closes, another door opens. And yeah, at the time when Hack left, you would think like, shit, that's a big blow for us because it could have been, you know, when we did that intro and I said these dudes are like, I was I was saying they were like Agassi, Sampras, etc. And those guys played their tennis players, so you're gonna play a lot more often. But they played like 18 times. And they were like a, a sporting rivalry. And we didn't realize at the time that they were going to show down once and once only. And, um, you know, for a real sporting rivalry, usually you would have several times over like we have with Hack or sorry, uh, Gibbs and Russell right now. So, yeah, yeah like 100%. When, when, when I still remember when Hack left and it was like, oh, shit, man, a little bit unfinished business. I would have liked to have seen him continue, but it, it kind of is what it is. And the thing is, when Hack left, so now he's chasing other goals, right? He's, he's going for all-time, basically all-time records, though. When you're in the untested division, and this is the difference between the untested and the IPF, in the untested, there isn't nearly as many rivalries because the, the, the depth of competition isn't there. So oftentimes, now you're chasing history versus records, as opposed yeah. to, um, like, most sports where you straight up have a showdown. So Hack is showing up at competitions, and he's fighting history. There's no one there that's going to oppose him. There's not a showdown. There's not a tit for tat battle back and forth right down to the very last deadlift who's going to win. It's he's he's shooting for totals in history, right? But in terms of viewing, that's great. But it's you're not going to have the standing room room only excitement like you have with Gibbs and where Hack left and went into the untested where they don't have that kind of depth of competition. At least not right now. Maybe someone steps up, but it's gonna, I don't see it right now. For Hack, Hack's kind of just more chasing history. Gibbs stays in the IPF, and the IPF is always, one thing you've, I've learned over the years, will always keep churning out new people, because the depth worldwide, not just one particular nation or whatever, worldwide is so deep. A dude like Russell Orr, he just emerges and is like, how you like me now, within two years. I mean, the first yeah. time you win, I mean, the second time I'm taking it and taking the world back. Like, and, and yeah. we're talking that right now, 2020. 2022, you don't know if someone else is going to come. It's going to be a whole other rivalry all over again. Yeah, well, even look at the, the French sub junior. She put up a turning total of 485 in the 63s. Yeah. Like, it's crazy, right? Um, and if she's 17, she's still a junior in five years. That's Samantha Eugene. Yeah. Uh, from French. Dude. Yeah. She's humbling. She's ruining people's days every time I post. It's insane what she's doing. Yeah, 17 years old. 
And um, um, yeah, she's pulling into the 400s, uh, like 185 or more, or no, pulling in more than that even. Um, what was it? 213. Yeah, 213. Yeah. 213 was so, absolutely insane. Yeah, for 17 year old. 17 year old, 63 kilo woman. I mean, it's freaking, uh, yeah, man. And people are emerging like crazy. And it's because, like, this is a global sport. I mean, Leah Bavois um, yeah. uh, and uh, Naomi Alibert from France. Like, once you get one champion or a couple stars in the nation and they start getting some heat on them and, like, social media-wise, you just hear about them, right? You don't need the local press or something to jump on it. Just social media pushes and you and people say, like, hey, did you hear about this person or that person? If you are a 16-year-old girl like Samantha was, and you tune, you follow, and you're like, oh, yeah, let me check this out. And you see a girl from your nation, like Leah Bavois or, or Naomi Alibert killing it, and you're like, let me give it a shot. That's how we start growing more and more, right? Like the more and more showdowns that we have and more and more stars that we have. Um, after that, Hack versus Gibbs showdown. So you go back to Ireland, and are you now like, I'm 100% in, and now I got the bug and is that like the changing, the finding new moment where you start following people, you start investigating, coaching, and handling, etc.? Yeah. Well, and the, I met Bill, Bill McCarthy for the first time in 2016. Oh, um, sorry to hear. <laughs> but he'd come over. Um, he still gives me shit about this, but I was coaching my lifter brother from the 63s. And like I said, it was our first time there. I think we opened the 135 squad. And then she missed on that. We took it again. And then I talked to her and we're like, we didn't come here for anything less than 150. So let's go 152. After so, missing twice? No, she got, she missed the first one on death. Got the second one. So we, we repeated the lift. Okay. And then after that, after that, we were like, we didn't come here for anything less than 150. Um, so let's go 152. It was a 17.5 kilo jump. For a 63 kilo lifter. Oh, yeah. Man, she was squatting halfway up. She done this helicopter thing when she turned around and finished the lift. Bill says, What was that? <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I mean, it, it comes with experience. That was the first time we ever experienced anything like that. We didn't even think that we would have been doing it. What four or five years? Four or five years later, and through the years we've learned how to pick a tennis better, and you know, just become students of the game. Mm-hmm. But when I got back, it was it was like like this is it. I went and seen what it's like on an international scene. I have to set up. We, we had a team, but we didn't have we didn't have any we didn't have gym to train at. We were just working out in commercial gym, so. We opened up a, a small like garage garage stadium and uh, we just started working out from there, going to competitions and you know, the next year we got into we went to Belarus. Um I brought a junior with me, only had a junior that year. But Belarus was a, a different story. It was crazy and for other reasons. <laughs> for other reasons. Well yeah it's for, in a lot of ways when you went to the U.S. for the World Championships, it's like when you went to the U.S. for the MMA training where um, when you go back home, you're like, oh, shit. Like, this is, there's another game up. We got to step a game up. Like, this, this inter- yeah. on the international level, like, they're not playing in terms of their training, uh, the scientific approach to training, and in terms of handling as well. 
like they, you know, the way they crunch numbers and know all the scouting reports and debriefing, et cetera. Um, I mean, yeah, if, if you weren't sure beforehand, like, did you, did you start talking when you start talking to Bill for anyone listening? I mean, Bill was on the uh, podcast a few episodes ago, head coach or one of the coaches, sorry, of the U S um, national team. Did you start talking to these coaches and start learning about like coaching in terms of programming, coaching in terms of handling, um, like rules, scouting, and the whole nine like that? Yeah, because back, back in Ireland, it was sort of like, I don't know what, what other coaches do, but for me personally, it was like, I was just sort of doing stuff for the sake of doing it. But then when I seen like coaches like Bill, Ariane with the United States, um, and then the other good coaches like Oscar, Carlina with Sweden, there was just something different about what they were doing, and I wanted in on it. I wanted in on it because I, you know, if you want to, if you want to get to the next level, you have to be operating like these guys are at the next level. And so I started like tracking a lot of stuff. I started like building up reports on, you know, what what the best attempt selection will be for for a meet. What how, like nutrition ways because nutrition was back in 2016 was it certainly in parliament it wasn't a thing but now like like we were talking about this before but the, you look at like Taylor Atwood he's got a programming coach he's got a nutritionist he's got physios he's got a sports psychologist you know people in 2020 in parliament are just becoming these full time athletes despite it being like you know, it's not a mainstream sport. It's it's a very niche sport when you think about it. So I was thinking, this is this is what I have to do for my athletes. Like if I get if I get stronger as a coach, they get stronger as athletes. Mm. Yeah, it's true. No, I mean the difference between 2015, 2016, and 2020. Right, you hit the nail right on the head. Where you got a guy like Taylor Atwood, and um, from programming to handling to nutrition to his RMT working on his body, to, um, I mean, the whole, he, no stone left uncovered. If you want to beat this guy, then oh, and on top of that, he's one of the, he's just a physically gifted athlete that probably is going to excel at whatever he wants to excel at, and he chose powerlifting. I mean, if you're going to beat a guy like that, you can't be on the 2016, I got one coach who does, you know, he's programming kind of winging the, the, the handling being like, wow, what are you good for? Five kilo, 10 kilo? You need, it's a whole nother level now. Like these people yeah. are, you know, they're, they're not just leaving it up to chance. They're not just leaving it up to, you know, they're actually, the water cuts, everything's down to a scientific level at this point. And that's why you have a guy like Taylor Atwood. In terms of consistency, you have some people show up and they're inconsistent. Taylor Atwood is consistent because he takes away those variables. You know, he's not, there's, there's no chance anymore with him. He's like, I'm going to maximize even when I've seen him lift injured and he's still, he's going to win and do like, you know, put, put forth a good performance because even if certain things fall out of his control, he has so many of those elements that he's got his hand on the pulse. Right. And they're making adjustments yeah. as they go of honest adjustments and, and adjusting on the fly, calling these audibles. That's, that's the way you got to go. That's, that's when you actually get to the world level and you see a guy like Taylor Atwood and his team around him and how, how prepared they are, or if you sit down and, he, and have an honest conversation, and he's like, this is what we've been doing, and talk to his coach, it's like, fuck. It, you really, you do go home, and like, I got to up my game. You know, we, we yeah. got to do better. We got to do better today. 
that that's that's so true. But every international that I come away from, you always learn something new. I mean, even right, even like the last European Championships, like Sweden versus Ukraine, our, our boy Anatoly um, versus uh, Gustav. That was, there, there was a good showdown. Not so much that games, but it was still it was a good showdown in the ninety threes. But like uh, Sweden, Gustav skipped up the second the second deadlift. Uh, he was waiting to see what Anatoly was going to do, and then he was going to call for something big. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for him. But it just shows you where it just shows you where part of them is going, the direction it's going. Like the brains are getting, they're thinking more creative, they're being more creative in their thinking. It's not just a straight up, you deadlift, I deadlift, you deadlift, right? Whoever wins, wins. It's like, they're going to they're be playing tactics, they're going to be learning new things, you know, so it's, it's good to see where the sport's going. It's not just the straight up, whoever the strongest person coming in is, is going to win, because chances are it's not going to happen on that next level, on that international stage. You're going to have you're going to have like people that are going to be critical and creative thinkers that are going to think of a way to spell it. I mean, when it, when it comes down to when people are so evenly matched, here's the thing, right? If you, and, and, and that's this is the way it is when you go to the world level. Oftentimes, anyone in the top five on any given day could pull for the win and end up making a big performance. And then anyone above them has, you know, misses one or two lifts. You only got nine attempts. There's only three events. You miss a couple lifts, and there could be a huge shakeup. So when things are that close and that tight, handling becomes – it's far more important than, let's say, at the local level, where it's like, look, you know, there could be a big spread between one and two. If there is even is a number two, and uh, basically you're just it's a max date, right? You're just maxing out. But at the world level, if you don't know all the rules, if you don't know all the different tactics that other coaches are going to do to you to bully you and, and make you take attempts that you don't even need to take – and then understand that you could change your attempts before the first squat happens, um, before they call, you know, no more changes, and then the last two deadlifts, etc. I mean, if you don't understand the, the like lot numbers, body weight, chips, world records, and whatnot, and you don't understand how to strategize with that, you're at a massive disadvantage. When you, how did you get that crash course? Did you sit down with people? Because I had Rory Lynch on here from New Zealand, and he said yeah. he got a mentor with Abby Silverberg of Canada. And he would like literally do things like, even even without Abby, he was saying that um, the New Zealand team would, would do like debriefings. Like, all right, here's the attempts that I did. And here's what ended up transpiring with our competition. Here's where we came in nominated. And here's where we ended up in terms of after the competition came down. And then, um, so did we move up in nominations? Did we move down? Did we miss attempts? Did the other people, did we open up the door strategically for other people to make attempts and gain on us when we shouldn't have. And um, and then they would debrief and then do a quick write-up why. And then at the end of the championships, um, he would call who he kind of looked at. So he would do this with Angus, who's the head coach of New Zealand constantly. And then he would call Abby Silverberg from Canada, who's a handling genius, sit down and have like a two-hour conversation being with like some of the bigger points. Some of the points where he's like, man, I either I dropped the ball or I thought, even if he's watching other people, perhaps drop the ball. And he's like, what happened here? And why did this happen? And then they have like a big conversation about it and be like, here's what the options could have been. And then you're kind of looking at the percentages 
you know, if this happened, if that happened, etc. And based off percentages, what you should have done. But it's so, um, just like any sport, in terms of rule, like, well, like jujitsu or whatever, in terms of percentages, you're making certain moves. So he was saying he mentorship in these conversations and debriefing was huge for him. In Ireland, though, did you have that? That you could go to someone in Ireland? And if not, did you seek out outside support from handlers and, and ask questions like debriefing sessions like that? Um, there's there's no like course that you can take in Ireland for it, but we, there's there's an IPS coaching cert that we went on, and that that's the European sort of USA CPU state course. Um, and DMR runs it, so basically DMR will take you through all the elements of powerlifting, the rules and stuff, and then you'll touch a bit of programming. After that, when we get home, uh, you know, I just followed certain like the guys would follow RTS, follow Ave, of course, and a couple of other guys. Um, and when I go to those championships, I would watch and see what, what moves that they make. Like, how, how, why do I think that they made those moves? And, you know, like, try, try and incorporate it in. But when I wasn't listening, or I wasn't coaching, sorry, not listening, when I wasn't coaching the session, I would have sat in the crowd and watched and tried to, try to select the next attempt, what I think it would have been. And then sometimes it was right, sometimes it was way off because obviously you can't you can't always understand what's going on, what the variables are. Um, so I, I was just trying to teach myself that way. But then I've had mentors like like uh, some of the, the American coaches. Uh, I watched Mark Gary. Mark Gary was always a person that one looked up to for attempt selection. Um, you know, I had a conversation with him in, or in Calgary. And yeah, he was a really nice guy. And we were just talking about, you know, attempts and things like that there. So, you know, and listening to podcasts, seeing the guests that, that you would get on are unbelievable as well. So they're very, very informative. So listening to the podcasts and watching like Instagram and things like that, it just sort of developed, developed the way I go ahead. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's interesting that like it's true. So when you're watching a sport, and oftentimes in most sports, just like anything, you see the players and the players are the rock stars, so to speak, right? But in some yeah. other sports as well, though, like if you're watching, I know basketball's not big in Europe and whatnot, but whether it's basketball, football, baseball, soccer, whatever it is, um, people start knowing who the coaches are, and they start getting notoriety for being like. This guy's a genius. This girl's a genius. They know what they're doing They, in terms of strategizing, in terms of getting the most other athletes, etc. Um, in powerlifting, we're a little bit late on that. Uh, we're, we're starting to come to it now. But for a large portion of it, you know, we hype up and we, we, we put on pedestals a lot of athletes as we should. But there was a, for a little while there, I remember even like star athletes were like almost downplaying the role of a handler. For whatever reason, I've had people on the podcast even, and some of these athletes, to a certain extent, I remember early on when we first started doing the podcast, were like, "Look, it, you're running numbers," and they would say they would they would they would say you're running numbers. Meaning, I remember you know what when I first started powerlifting, being asked, "Do you want to run numbers for me?" And I'm like, "What does that mean?" And the guy's just like, "And I didn't know nothing about powerlifting, right?" This is like when I first started. He's like, "I just need you to put in my attempt selection, 
load my warm-up bar, you know, let me know what's going on on the score bar, scoreboard, and that's it. It's not much. And I was like, all right, cool, I can do that. I can hack that. Um, so it was basically, that's all it was, was running numbers. At some point, the game rose, and people, like, strategies started coming, because the thicker the competition is, and the deeper the competition, obviously, the more everyone else has to raise the game. And people started realizing, like, this is more than, I think all you need is a couple big showdowns, and then somebody wins or loses based off the handling of strategy, and then starts opening people's eyes. And slowly, I feel like now, and hopefully, like, podcasts like this, and, and the Instagram channel King of the List has, and the different platforms we've got, we can start pushing that, like, this is an integral part of the game. And the coaches in powerlifting need as much shine as, as the coaches in other sports because they can make or break at the top level. And a lot of people who might be ignorant of what a coach can bring, it's not just for programming, but also handling. Hopefully it's an education process because you have, you still do have some top flight stars in powerlifting. They can smash weights, they're physically gifted, but they don't necessarily know all the options, everything that can happen when you go into a competition. They don't know all the rules. They don't know all the strategizing. And they might not even be able to pick out who's who in terms of handling and who's who's one of the top flight coaches. You know, I I foresee like a day soon, the more we have things like the SPD invitation, the more we have like major showdowns at the top. And and it becomes down to like very close battles and handling starts going into it. And I'll tell you right now, as a commentator, I like to point out when people do a great handling job. Um, and I also want to pick your brain about who you think the best handlers are and some, some examples of some great handling jobs that you might have seen. You're like, oh, shit, that was pretty dope. But I think the more and more we start showing that, the more and more handlers are going to get their just due. And then they'll start being like stars just like some of these athletes. Like, have you noticed a bit of a shift? Or do you think still, for the most part, people just don't know and they think it's running numbers? I think that, I mean, if you look at the U.S., and even Canada, they are starting to get right. They, they, they hire handlers. They pay coaches handling fees. You know, so they, they select, they'll go and look at them. They'll obviously pick someone with credibility. And, you know, can you help me win this national championship or world championship? You know, so it's, it's definitely on the increase. I mean, personally, I think that Game, what we call it game day coaching, but it, it's every bit as important as, you know, just a, a partisan coach because you have to you have to make 30-second decisions on the outcome of that lifter's championship. And if you make the wrong call, you're the bad guy. And if you make the right call, you're, you're the hero. But, but, I mean, like, there's something about that. I mean, if you can't have the pressure... Your day coaching probably isn't going to be for you. Yeah. You know, you know, Rory was on here and he was saying the skills that create a good programming coach, which is data collection, data crunching, and um, and then just basically making making decisions, but you have I mean you could crunch the numbers and study really, right? So it's it's a little different how game day coaching, that's not the same skills. It's not you have you have 30, you have 60 seconds. Now, there is data collection walking in. I mean, you got your clipboard and you got all your percentages worked out and scouting reports on, you know, let's say it's top five down or top five up. Um, so you know, okay, what's the percentages on hitting the third squat, their third bench, et cetera. And if they fail the third squat, what's the percentages they hit 
or miss their, their third deadlift and all these numbers are crunched um, best case scenarios worst case scenarios and everything in between and whatnot but you still want to guess so you, you might have collected data and done that leading into but those 60 second decisions you got to be comfortable making those and you got to also there is an element as well that of like a psychological aspect too like have you gone in there have you had it because everybody's different right in powerlifting you could have a, like a field if you got a national team you got people who can be like nervous you got people who can be overly confident and want to shoot for the moon you got to pull them back you can have people you know everything in between you in terms of the cycle of the the psychological aspects of it how did you find working with athletes and, and it, coming from like a, a sport like mma where it is crazy intense in terms of the psychology have you ever had to pull people aside and give them like a pep talk and rally them up, get their spirits up or the opposite and have to pull back the reins and be like, look it, you know, we're, we're shooting too high. We got to, we're not going to win it like this. Yeah. There's been so much with my athletes because I'm big at the sports psychology. So we, we have like, it's, it's just me. Whenever I was growing up, I loved all the, the coaching movies, coach Carter, all this year, I just love the the psychological aspect of coaching. Um, so I would be, I would ingrain that into my athletes anyway. So and and they're pretty much told that when we're going into a competition, um, going to have the attacks. You you take the attack and go and sit down, and your job's done. Your job today is to walk in, make the lift, come back, and go and sit down again, and then I will. I'll make the decision on what we go next. Um, but other people, you know, you, you see them. There was one case that I saw, and this lifter was saying, I think I have it. And the coach was saying, I don't think you have it. But it, it was an argument. And they walked away and they missed they missed their, their lap because they missed that minute tournament. So it just bumped up two and a half kilos. So they both missed it. You know, it was it, it because because they didn't have a system where right, I'm making the call today and you're doing the lifting. You know, it 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 shot them both in the foot. It made it made them both of them look like you know amateurs almost. So you know, you have instances like that. It's good to it's good to have the the athletes know when they're coming in. They're the athlete. Let the coach be the coach. And obviously, with the big Instagram. Um, personalities and stuff, you know, it's not so clear cut. But even with those guys, it's probably a better, it's probably a conversation better to have before you come into the championship, so they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, have you, like, when you go onto the world scene, and obviously you're going to see some of these big name coaches and handlers out there. Who are some of the teams and some of those coaches that, when you see them, you know you're in for a battle? Um, if it's international if it's worse I mean you're, you're probably going to be looking at you know like people like the USA Canada um, France are definitely coming up here I mean I've seen more France, French athletes coming on the big stage not just on the stage but on the big stage in the last few years that I've, that I've seen since I've been in the sport Sweden many of the Scandinavian companies are here so Sweden Sweden have a solid sort of system like, uh, they have a solid system working and New, Ze- New Zealand's coming up there as well Rory has 
Gibbs. So he's always in that with with the United States boys. Mm-hmm. And um, do you do, do you guys ever reach out to like other handlers and coaches and exchange information and, and talk about strategy? Or if someone fumbles the ball, be like, oh damn, kind of fumbled the ball there, my man. Yeah. No, I, in Ireland, it's just, it's sort of like territorial. I mean, each, each club has their own system and stuff like that there. And, you know, they wouldn't reach out and change, exchange information or anything. But when you want the worst stage, I'm happy to like, learn. That's what I want to do. I want to go and learn. Like, you know, if you get, if you get stuck in, if you get stuck in a bubble, you're never gonna, you're never gonna like get beyond that. So if you're stuck in like Ireland or any other country for that matter, and you don't reach out to the people that are that are pioneering the sport and that are that are leading the way, they're leading the charge, you're never gonna get any better. So I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm in MMA and in partisan and anything else to do in the future. I'm always gonna be a student of the game, and there's always something that I'm going there. So. I like to stay really humble about it and uh, you know learn everything that I can because every year there's there's something new that's going to happen or there's a new tactic and you know it's not too long before everyone starts employing it. It's um a couple of social medias that I've seen like Abby Silverberg had been posting. I remember the World Championships was rolling around and he's posting up in his his Instagram story and I seen that you were checking it out too. Yeah. And he was like analyzing some of the strategic moves of some of the coaching and some of the lifters, like session to session, if he saw something that like he thought popped out and he's like, oh, well, this is interesting. Here we have a situation. I think one of them was three chips in place. Was that one of them where yeah. one lifter had two, another lifter had one, and he's kind of breaking down what, what the options were? Yeah, it was it was the 84s in Sweden. And he was sort of breaking down what he thought what what he would have done in that situation, but he was, I think that he was talking about Amanda and Danny, yeah, Amanda and Danny, and it was one of the, it was when she took the bench, and she had that double chip, and why it sort of, it turned into a triple chip. And, and what what happened then? I can't remember exactly. Do you remember? With the double chip, triple chip, and he was trying to explain what the significance was. Now rare that this a situation was like this. I'm not, I can't really recall, but the thing that I was like focusing on, the thing that I could wrap my head around was uh, wherever Danny hit the world record first, right? And then Amanda just matched her total. But for me, you have to break a world record by 2.5. At least I thought that's what it always was. And then, but to give the record to Amanda, so I, I always thought that it was the first person to, to hit the record, got the record, and then you have to chip it by 0.5, but I'm not too sure. I think that that was like a gray area in the river, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is interesting, and I love that when um, Abby was breaking it down because he was showing, like, he was raising these questions and saying, like, how rare certain scenarios were in wondering, like, sometimes these things unfold and the coaches don't even know, like, okay, well, we've never seen this before. Where you got three chips in play, um, and then you put in body weight, lot numbers, and then who's going first, who's going second after that. in Because uh, you could collect your chips in one event, go into the other. So you got three chips in play, but 
you're still the one going first. So it's, there's a lot of different variables that he was breaking down and different possibilities and things you might do. And um, yeah. at some point, I got to get Abby on there as well. But I love this breakdown and trying to follow it. It's like, oh, shit. You know, we don't, I don't think we get enough of that in powerlifting to explain these kind of things. Yeah, he's, he's the next level. He's, he, he should be running courses on how to handle them every day because, you know, his way of thinking is definitely the next level. I mean, the, some of the stuff that he was breaking down, he, even simple stuff like, I think he was breaking down at 120. Um, I think that, I'm trying to remember, he had one of the guys opted by 2.5, but and to get the advantage, but in the second attempt, to get the advantage back for no reason. And then he was trying to break that down as well. I mean, and then obviously he was breaking down some of his own lifters. Like he was breaking down Jesse's Jesse's sort of competition. He was breaking down Jesse's competition going going against him, and you know the reasons why he thought the other attempts, you know, were structured the way that they were. Was that? You, I... Who's this? Jesse Butler in the 70s in Sweden. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jessica Bittner. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And what was yeah. he saying about that? He thought that... What was he saying there? No, he was just... He was structuring... He was explaining why the attempts were being selected. You know, and... and her, when she took her last... Her last deadlift, she took first place. And then came on out to and like take the deadlift to take the first place back. But with Ken, like probably on that day she probably pulled two fifty. She was on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it looked like on that day Kim would have pulled if you loaded the bar with whatever she needs to win, she was gonna pull it that day. Like she was just not gonna be denied. Sometimes you see that with athletes, right? Where they come out yeah. on that third deadlift and they know it's for the win and it's like this is going up. There there isn't gonna be any any stop like you, you just I got that impression. I remember commentating, and I think I said pretty much exactly that, paraphrasing, but whatever they loaded the bar for Kim that day, on that particular day, she was not going to be denied with that third deadlift. Like, she had so much in her. Sometimes you get the feel when someone hits that, you're like, this person's determined. Yeah, she, looking at her at the back, she was fired up. Like, she just looked like she wasn't going to be stopped. And, you know, like, she, I think she got two squats, if I'm not mistaken, but one in the deadlifts, well, I think three people, maybe four, had fake deadlifts in, like fake attempts. And Anna was the only one that didn't, like, increase it. But what Anna done was, I think Anna took an attempt to force Sweden, to force Sweden and Canada to lower their attempts. You know, she wanted to make them hold the position, hold the position on the deadlifts. But obviously when, when she missed, then Jesse that was going to pull her last deadlift, which she smoked, to go in the first position. And then Kim came out after and was able to like, pull through the win. But I think that, uh, I think she, she wasn't going to be denied that day. I mean, there was a lot of hate coming in and a lot of stuff that happened previously that she wanted to put the bed and she done it. Here's the thing with Kim, right? With a monster deadlift like Kim has, she has the ability to always pull last. At least up until now, she's always pulled last. So she knows exactly what she needs to load the bar to pull for the win. 
And she doesn't have to go a kilo more. It's like, what do we need to win? Well, guess what? That's exactly what you're going to put on. And she could, she could also do a plate. Like, she gets to see everybody ahead of time, whether or not she needs as much or not. Because you, you have two opportunities to change your last deadlift so she can have a placeholder deadlift in there. Um, however, did you see Jessica Bittner's performance at the Canadian Nationals? 565, and she pulled 250, 551 pounds. For the first time, we might see somebody deadlift after Kimberly Walford, and it might be Jessica Bittner. Yeah. If that were to happen, this is when the chess match really happens between Team Canada and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Because when you're loading the bar, whoever is in the lead leading up to that last deadlift, I mean, when you got a placeholder in hand, it becomes... If you don't change your placeholder deadlift and I don't change mine, if I'm in the lead, well, that's fine. Let's both walk out there. We'll give a little tug on the bar and I win. Someone's got to blink first. And we've never seen a competition where Kimberly actually comes out before the last deadlifter. She's always the last deadlifter. She's always pulling for the win. This could conceivably be the first time ever that somebody else comes after Kimberly and pulls for the win. Now, there's, there's a danger here. Because when we've also, because Kimberly always has the biggest deadlift, there's a situation where we could, for the first time as well, both lifters push each other too far, and they're both loading up that last deadlift too heavy because they both want to pull last, and that's the best position you could be in in powerlifting. When you can pull last, you always pull last, because you know exactly what you need to pull for the win. The problem is when you're neck and neck on the deadlift with somebody, you both can be shooting too high. Because you're both pushing each other just a stitch over the limit. And you both want to load the bar for to be pulling last. So you're both going too handy. And that's when you could possibly both miss your thirds. And then it's a bit of a crapshoot. And that's when the, the strategizing where Rory was saying, if you can, if it's, if it's within reach, you want to be in the lead after the second deadlift. Because the percentages of people that miss their third are relatively high when the competition is that clustered and close at the top. And then when you're into the third deadlifts and everybody's putting in their placeholders and everyone's being able to change their third deadlift twice and there's jockeying around, if everybody misses, or not everybody, but everybody who's in the hunt trying to bump your position misses, including yourself, it's that second deadlift that had you in the lead that's going to keep you in the lead and then you're good to go. That's why it's that favorable. And we haven't seen that yet with Kim where somebody's toe-to-toe with her like this and she might be getting out of pool. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, see, that's gonna be. I can't. That's why I hope the world championships go down just to see this all play out and how it's gonna be interesting. This could be Hack Gibbs in twenty twenty. Yeah, this could be the, this could be that showdown that you know that that's hyped up. Uh, the same. I hope it. I hope it does go down. I mean, you know, such a fierce competitor like Kim going going against. You know, Jesse's Jesse is just coming. At a junior rate as well, like she's two years in in her open career. So that to be toe to toe with Kim this earlier into this early into her open career is incredible as well. I mean, what what's she going to do in the next five ten years? Yeah, she's going to, she's going to push six hundred. You know, yeah. with those fancy numbers. Yeah. I mean, to me the five sixty would be okay. Yeah, five six five is good. Yeah, you know, so what are we going to see from her and? And with Kim as well, I mean, shoot. Did you watch that? Did you watch that SBU video that they had made? Um, I did. Yeah. Yeah, and 
it just gives you an insight into her mindset. It's just like she had a, a saying up on her wall that says, keep underestimating me. She she frowns on people underestimating her. So, I mean, if, if people are going to put the show down, like, that's going to that's gonna fire her up as well. You know, like, she, she, she won't go down without a fight. She'll keep, she'll keep fighting right, right to the last bit. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that people will be underestimating. This is Kimberly, right? And it's crazy yeah. to think that people will be underestimating her when she's probably looking at her resume, the most like established resume we've seen in the IPF, period. Like, she's never lost. She's never yeah. lost at the U.S. Raw Nationals, which is extremely high competition. I mean, that's international level, even if it's a national level, because they got so many world champions in there. She's never lost at the IPF World Championship, despite all these showdowns. But the reason why people can, and, and it would seem like, okay, then how could she ever be underestimated or an underdog? The thing is, she's in her 40s. And uh, born in 78, so we're looking at 42 by the time we lift again at the World Championships, as long as the Worlds do happen in 2020. Eventually, she's got to peter off. Eventually, just the laws in terms of, even look at, even if she was... Even if she's not petering off, because this is powerlifting and strength is the last thing to go. You don't need hand-eye coordination. You don't need stamina. You don't need, you know, reflexes. It's just strength with powerlifting. It's strength and minding your P's and Q's in terms of technique. Kimberly's been lifting long enough. Her technique's not changing. She's good. You know, she's not going to have some major technical breakdowns at the last second. And so in your 40s, strength is the last thing to go. She could be carrying on for quite some time. But even the laws, even, even if that's the case, because eventually it's got to deteriorate, if not deteriorate, it's just not gaining like her opposition. Like conceivably Jessica Bittner, who just did a 5.65. So you might be saying, look, it, even if she's just holding, some of these younger girls are gaining and eventually they're going to catch up. But let's just say all things being even, the likelihood of never having a bad day year after year showing up and you just always perform and make it happen is it's like it's we still for a long time ray was capable of that and then eventually he caught up to ray like you were yes you were going to show up sick sometime you're going to show up injured sometime you something is going to happen a crazy water cut something that eventually year after year after year you have to have at least one bad day and something doesn't go your way if not bomb out is you're just not going to have the day, and it's it's going to make the difference because the competition is so deep at the World Championships. If you're 5% less and someone else is hitting at 100%, that's the day you lose. Kimberly hasn't even had that yet. And that's where it's like, and, and when she says, like, keep underestimating me, it's not so much, I think everybody unanimously will say, you're the GOAT. You know, like, I would unanimously yeah. say, you're the GOAT. I don't think anyone can even contest that at this point. Okay. But... It is like, how often, how could this streak continue? It's like if I'm flipping a coin and it always lands on heads. And I, it's a two-faced coin, I'm flipping it and it always lands on heads. And then you eventually, if it landed on heads for the hundredth time, and I'm like, what do you think it's going to land this time? You might be start telling yourself, oh, fuck, eventually it's going to be tails. It's got to be tails. I know it's 50-50 every single time you flip it. But we haven't seen tails yet. What's the likelihood if I go up to 200, we're not going to see tails at least once or twice? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And that's where I think it's easy to start doubting Kimberly. Where it's like, man, this has got to be eventually. You got to fumble the ball. She's got to be human. Yeah. I think as well, it's it's going to be so hard to look at a 72 kilo world championship podium and not see her up on first place. I mean, 
that's going to be, like you say, it eventually, if you flip a coin enough times, then it will land on tails. I mean, that's going to be like a different chapter for, for the 72s, I think. You know, to see someone who isn't Ken Walford, who, like, obviously a couple of years ago, you know, she wasn't competing, but the competition with Ken is a part of, and to not see her on first place, it will be, it's going to be uh, different. It would be bizarre, man. It's like watching Mike Tyson get knocked out. Where you're like, yeah. I, I still remember as a kid watching Mike Tyson get knocked out, by the way. And I was thinking to myself, this is fucking weird to even see. You just can't picture it. You just don't, like like you said, yeah, Kimberly a couple years ago didn't show, though. And she wasn't the world champion. But to see, so, all right, if she's not there, all right, whatever. It is what it is, right? But to see someone else actually beat her, and she's in second, fuck, man, what if she's in third? Or what, look, the competition's so deep, what if she doesn't podium? And this isn't even like a knock on Kim. You've got people like Anna Rosa Castellane, who's a, a multiple-time world champion, won world championships in equipped and in the classic division. Um, after the world championships in Sweden, actually broke the world to- total record, um, as well as the equipped record, in the same competition in the Pan Am championships. So she beat the total that Kimberly posted up. But in Sweden, the competition was so deep a couple errors here and there, and someone else coming in 100%, she's not quite 100%. Anna Rosa Castellane didn't even medal. Same year, she broke the total world record. Same year, she posted the heaviest total we've ever seen in the 72s. Same year, she goes to the world championships and doesn't even medal. That's how tough the competition is. And then in the Europeans, like the Russian Angelina. Yeah. She she had a five forty three point five. She broke the world record total. Yeah. You know, you know, like so. If you look at if Russia, Anna, Jessica, and Kim was to come for the world championship, hopefully they hopefully it does happen this year. I mean, we're we're at a stage where that weight class is just ridiculous. I mean, if you make one mistake. Your fourth, you know what I mean. So I hope it comes together, and we and we get to see what what goes on in that class. Talking about people emerging out of nowhere, yeah, Angelina, she was like I think fifth or sixth at the World Championships in Sweden, and um, and Isabella von Weizen Russell is in the hunt too. Um, she was like fifth or sixth at the World Championships in Sweden, and then I mean that's June, going into November, her posting up her world record total at seventy two was fairly breezy as well. Like she did what she had to to win and take the world record so that she's in the pole position in the number one 72 of all time with that performance. And it looked like she had more to take. Like she could have been conceivably, I mean, sometimes people always look easy breezy, two and a half more kilo and it breaks the bank. I get it. You know, some people, that's how they look right up until it doesn't look like that. And the wheels come off quickly. But it looked like she'd be breezing into the 560s. Or sorry, 550s. Now that's November. Now that we're talking, you know, we're in April, who knows? Maybe she also was in the 560s. I mean, we could, it's it's kind of weird. And I don't know, like, how Kim, if Kim's paying attention, I think, she, like, she's got to be. But, you know, it's got to be, I don't know how I feel looking at these people who are, like, almost 20 years younger than you chasing at you like that. I mean, the motivation's got to be high. You know, and seeing the yeah. hype on these people coming up, knowing eventually. Like, it's time, eventually. This is going to happen. I had her on the podcast and I asked her 
was like, how do you deal with that pressure? And she's like, you got to approach it when you walk into competition like, not today. Someday. Yeah. Maybe next time. Not today. Not today. You just got to. You have to believe yeah. that today. And you know, when she walked up to the third deadlift at the Worlds in Sweden, you fucking bet your ass it wasn't that day. <laughs> it looked like you could have loaded the bar with anything, and it was like, you, you could tell her, she's like, not today. But soon, oh, that's why, you know, it's, it's tough to see people go down who are legends like that. The passing of the torch has to happen eventually, though, obviously. Just like all sports, the torch is going to get passed. And you know this. And it's hard to see, like, a legend fall, right? Because you prop them up. But um, it's always courageous when they come out there swinging like that. Yeah. For me, as well, it, something that Kim has is the psychological advantage because she's been doing this for the guts of 20 years, right? So every competition, she, her, her mindset builds more and more. So I think that going in there, like, she can play on that a bit as well because people... If when it gets to the stage where someone does take it off camp, it's like you're taking this off the coat. Yeah. Like she has that. She has that. She has that sort of inner arsenal. Like she is the goat. I mean, once if someone's taking, if you're taking it off, if you're taking it off camp, you're taking it off the coat, and she's not going to just hand you. Like you have to work for it. Oh, she's in the fight until the very last punch, my friend. Because that deadlift, she's never fully out of it. That's why it's yeah. going to be. I don't even know what it would look like for her to load up the third dead, someone else to load up the third dead, the other person hits and Kim misses. That would be such a weird thing to even witness. You know, that's when she, she's going to go out on her shield. Like, she's going out and she's pulling for the win. I, I, I could not see Kimberly loading the bar, pulling for silver, and defending silver against bronze. Like, whoever's in the bronze, you see that sometimes in championships where you have to make a tough decision. You sit down with the coaching staff, you're like, we guess 60 seconds. I can load up the bar and you could swing for gold, you miss, you probably fall off the podium. Um, but it, or, and if you hit, you hit gold. Or, we could defend your silver medal against the person who's in bronze, against the person who's in fourth, against those, because they're going to pull and they're trying to swap their medal for yours. Which way do you want to go? You got 60 seconds, give me the answer. And you weigh the odds, right? For some people, if you went into the world championships and you weren't thinking gold, you're like, fuck it, let's defend the silver, man. A silver medal at the World Championships is fucking bonkers anyways. And you're looking at the odds of, do I have that gold medal pull in me? Sometimes it's no. Sometimes you're like, if it's not dead on it's no, it could be like a 30% chance. You're like, all right, well, if I got a 75% chance of keeping my silver with this weight, but a 30% chance that gold, some people are like, fuck it, take the 75% silver. I, can you even imagine a scenario where Kimberly Walford's saying, let's defend silver? No. Not, not when you're the GOAT. Not when you're the GOAT. She's like, I'll, I'll come in fucking dead last. We're loading up for the... It, like, obviously, that's not going to be the scenario. Look at your last pull. You don't get it, you're in last. You get it, you're in first. Like, that's not going to happen. But if it's falling off the podium, she's like, fuck it, I'll go off the podium. Man. I'm swinging. I'm Kimberly Walker, yeah. for God's sake. She's like, I'll go down to the ship. I'm the captain. I'm going to go down with it. That's right. Like, load it up. Load it up. Yeah, that's right. What if... What are some other showdowns and other weight classes that got you interested in hoping that 2020 happens for the World Championships? I kind of want to see... Well, now that Sheffield's cancelled, I want to see Anatoly versus Gustav again. I think that, that's going to be good. Yeah. 
Um, and Jonathan Keiko in the 93s as well. I mean, Jonathan yeah. Keiko, um, I mean, he's, he's got, I think it's the unofficial world record. The thing is, Anatoly hit an 870 at the Ukrainian Nationals that we didn't see. And people that watch the Ukrainian, I don't even know if it's streamed, man. But it was an 870 total, which is freaking bonkers. Now, I think um, Keiko's good for 870. I think he hit 867 and a half, and he's going to do whatever he's got to to win the U.S. Nationals, and he might have some kilos to spare because it's not quite like the Ukrainian Nationals. Anatoly's probably eating his food. You know what I mean? Where he's showing up, second place is so far off, he could do whatever he wants. He could miss lifts uh, while swinging big, and he's okay. Keiko, when you're in the U.S., you can't swing big and miss and be okay. You're going to be out. It's way too competitive. Yeah. So we're not fully sure where we see Keiko at. But if Anatoly's top end is 870, that's, that could be where he gives. That's where he gives level. And, and for a little while there, it appeared as though the 93s on the international stage, it was pulled back a little because the 83s started catching up a little bit with their, their totals, right? And the spread between the 93 kilo totals and the 105s was starting to become spread. Um, so you can see we're like, look, at, we're going to start seeing the 93s eventually start posting up the big, these big totals. As long as all the chips kind of fall into place, so to speak, right? And I think with Jonathan Keiko clashes with Anatoly, and then you throw Gustav in there. I don't know, man. That's, that's a flip a coin situation for me. Because Jonathan Keiko's a young dude and he's getting only better. And, and Anatoly, despite being a veteran of the game, is also extremely young as well. He was in the open at uh, 21 years old, 20 years old, while lifting in the open, just totally bypassed the juniors altogether. So he's younger than, yeah. than people think. Yeah, I mean, he's, I think he's won some big. He's won a world championship and a couple of European championships. And he's, I think he's still junior, or is this his first open year? Not totally. Um, in Belarus, so age-wise, I'm not sure, but in Belarus, he's in the open despite being a junior. He's like 21 in Belarus, and he was like, like he's still had a couple more years in junior, and he's like, I'm going to the open. Because that's like, he's like, he's like, um, he's like John Hackman. The guy's a stud, he knows it, he can swing with the big boys, he need not, you know, somewhat protect himself by going into the juniors. So, age-wise, I'm not sure, but I think he's around 25-ish, but he's been in the open longer than you know, his age would have said, because he jumped in there quick. Yeah. I mean, it's good. it is going to be a good show, man. I mean, I've seen Keiko. He's, he's just a beast as well. I mean, but the variable that, you know, the chat to think about is like, how many of these guys are actually trailing right back with with the virus situation? Mm. I mean, there's, there's some people that are not training. And then that's how they come out of it in June. If they want to run the championship in October, they have to play catch-up, plus they have to get strong. So they've lost a lot of time. But someone like Anatoly, I don't know. I mean, I think that he probably has the equipment, you know, and he's training. And then other other people just don't have that luxury to have the, the equipment to train. So they, they may fall behind. And you might see a different formation of the world championships this year in my opinion it is weird because yeah you're right like the, you see all those memes roll around with like um bane and it says like gym owners and then it shows the dude like in the pink and it's like <laughs> all the guys who didn't all the guys and girls who didn't have home gyms um but it's true man like you could have a major shakeup with the rankings depending on if somebody does have access i had jessica bittner on 
on the podcast just yesterday, and she was talking. Was it yesterday or the day before? Quarantine days, man. Every day seems the same. But um, but she was talking about like she's just getting some weights now. She could she could train and stuff. But there are some people, even if you've got like access to home gyms, it might not be the same though. Like you don't have you have spotters and loaders. Does that impact how heavy you're going for squat? What kind of equipment you got? I think Jonathan Keiko, he's got himself some weights. I don't know if he's got all the weights he needs or if he's got like a rack and he's just kind of you know he's got a spotter. So how heavy and how daring is he going to get? At all times, if he's doing bench and squat, etc., um, and how how long can you run at you know eighty percent? How many months in a row? If, it's okay if you're as long as you're staying in you know decent shape, you can pick it up. But the longer this runs, the more interesting it's going to be and start impacting people. And if if I think Keiko's going to be all right, but if there is somebody who out there who's top five and you don't have gym access, and we're talking two three months. That's going to be tough to bounce back from. Depending on how much lead in when we come out of lockdown, you've got rolling into October. I mean, it's it can... Everyone's different. you got some freaks, man. It doesn't take them much to start hitting the ground running. But yeah, you can have a shakeup. I think most top flight lifters that I've seen have access to weights. But there was a couple that I heard rumblings from in DMs where people were like, I don't think this person's got weights right now. They're not posting a lot. They're posting a lot of throwbacks. In pictures, you know what I mean? It's like, what's going on with you right now? And uh, Anatoly is a tough guy because he's coming out of the Ukraine to try to keep tabs on. You know, he doesn't he doesn't post very many training. He doesn't, you don't know full by what he's capable of. A lot of people, including myself, in like North America, were like, oh, well, if he's an 850 range kilo total, then Jonathan Keiko should be a massive favorite leading in. Not knowing, man, at the fucking Ukraine National Championships, my man's posting up 870. You know, so, and if he's pushed, who knows what we're talking about. And he doesn't post training, so it's hard to, like, add up and see where his projected might be. It's, and then, you know, so it's it's real difficult when you're trying to do scouting reports. When you do scouting reports, are you tracking people on social media and Instagram and looking up, like, national records or whatnot? Or, you know, the, the results from some of these meet directions? Or, like, what are you doing for your scouting? So, most of the time I'm looking at previous meets. I mean, a lot of people just post up their training on Instagram, but most recently, I don't know if this is happening in Canada and in the US, but they stopped posting that closer to the competition. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're sort of trying to head, like, head what they're going to do at the meet. But the chances are, you know, if, you, if, if, they're going to be, if it's going to be like three to six months, I mean, you can get strong, but if you're missing a lot of third squats, then your chances are you're going to be missing some deadlifts. I mean, I, personally, I think it's, it's the way I've been trying to teach athletes is, you know, stop looking at your competition as if they're going to be getting in doing PR squat, PR bench, PR deadlift, PR total, and go on name for name, because sometimes people have that picture built up that these the competition is going to be, you know, they're going to smash their area apart. And chances are, they go six, seven, like nine, and they may, you know, not PB, their squatter bench, but they may check their deadlift and total the main inner folded, or they'll just go a bit more in yeah, a three to six month period. So when they're heading, when they're heading their, you know, sort of lifts on Instagram, 
the only thing that they're doing is for me it's weakness because when you when you look at the grand scheme it's like we look at it from competition to competition and with resources like the open powerlifting and things like that you know you, you can paint the picture of what way and me just want to go for that certain individual it's um you know brett told me one time when i was working with brett gibbs he was like i remember going to a competition and taking looking up an open powerlifting the three best like lifts so the the best squat best bench best deadlift and amalgamating them into a super total not the total that they put together on any particular day but only with their best and then adding five percent on top of that saying what if they got better and pr'd on it all and then formulating a game plan based off of that and brett was like listen man you gotta settle down kind of like you're saying where you're like you just took all three of this these people's best lifts not they didn't do it all on the same day which good luck trying to put together all in the same day three prs and then a fourth pr in total very difficult that's not really how things shake up in real life so you take all their best then put five percent on top of that just assuming they're going to pr furthermore on previous best performances and then you're working out a game plan trying to max that he's like honestly do your best in terms of squat your own squat your own bench and then take a look where you're at on the subtotal and then pull for the win if you think you're pulling last, which I was pulling last. He's like, you're good. If you think you're pulling last, by the time you get to the deadlifts, you're probably okay. He's like, don't start overshooting. You could, you really can. That's a drawback with social media and open powerlifting. Sometimes you could overthink it. You know, like, you know, those memes are like, stop it, you overthink it again. And you can. And you can like add, okay, well, if they do this, that, and the other, I'm going to have so much more. Even even Kathleen, who does a lot of the co-hosting for um, King of List, Going into the Canadian Nationals, he was looking at the dude that he was going head-to-head with, and um, Kathy was doing the same thing. Like, I mean, this guy, like, he's usually 9 for 9, 8 for 9, 9 for 9, 8 for 9. And this is the total that he's posting up. And Kathy's like, if we do a projected increase all of his lifts by 5% and start doing, like, you know, we start, you can't help but start doing, like, powerlifters turn into mathematicians real quick. When a, when a powerlifting competition rolls around and we start doing all these weird formulas like this is what I project the person's going to be at yada yada and I'm like man we don't know this necessarily like I was saying in terms of the rule like the laws of um, probability even with like Kimberly I'm like eventually even if this dude is consistently 8 for 9 9 for 9 he's going to have a fucked up day eventually you don't know if it's going to be that day so let's not get it out of pocket stay in the pocket and let's see what happens come the meet day and then what do we know by the time we rolled up into the deadlifts, um, his chief opposition had already missed two lifts and then started missing deadlifts. And ended up only getting one deadlift. And there was like a like tons of this going on in there. They ended up missing four lifts as opposed to going for a ninth nine, which Kathleen was telling himself in his head, like, holy shit, this is going to be a battle if we get right into it. And that's often where you could even pull yourself out of pocket. And you start doing, and that's like out of, you know, that's where the, the coaching and handling needs to almost bring back the athlete a little bit and be like, look it. You know, don't let this get into your head, you know, and you probably seen that a lot doing coaching, leading into like world championships and whatnot, where the athlete thinks this is probably what we need and they're all amped up and you're like, look it, we'll see. Yeah. Um, one, one time that I remember doing this is, you know, leading that to the European Championships in 2018 and we were going in and, you know, the way for, for me, like, I would always look at the nominations to see what, what's happening. And 
you know, you've got you've got yeah, four nine who was we're talking sixty threes. She's always there, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes Liam Bavlak with a four sixty total. Nominated, never seen her before. You know, never came against her, and uh, you know, it's like who the hell is this girl? So we get there, and the strategy was I wanted it. I wanted Bernard to take a shot at the European record because. In twenty in twenty eighteen, it was it was pretty long standing because it, it, it stood since two thousand and twelve when Ina was a Ina was a, a sixty three lifter, so it's a long a long time ago. And uh, her latest squat was strong. We knew it was strong, but I, I thought that looking at her, it was we were going to weigh up that this is her first international. It was it's her first. And the races, so we're gonna to have to look at what she what she's capable of, and then also take into account that she might be nervous. And she she was nervous. I mean, she I think she missed her opener, and then they jumped five kilos. Oh wow! And yeah, and she missed that as well. Oh shit! Yeah, that's that's, that's now, yeah. You, now you backed up. Yeah, so she got us there, but our strategy, so right three minutes before, three minutes before the, you know, your three minute cutoff, we bumped it up two and a half. So, so we went 162 and she, she did bump it up to 170. She messed her up there and then we went 172 for a second attempt. So she got a look at us to see what we were going to do, or France got a look at us. And we went 172, we got that. And she went 175, which she missed. We attempted the 175, which she got. And then we took the 178 to take the record. And, you know, so that day we got the cherry, but obviously Ivana, Ivana and Leah got the Sunday because they finished one first and second. But I knew right there and then that, you know, we, we caught great. I knew that she was coming. Now, from, from that competition, I said to her after, like, like I have her, I have her to be the next 63 long-time champion. She's gonna, she's gonna be the one that will go. Will, that's gonna be go and win a world championship, but she'll win because I've got a couple of stories about her. Like at the European Championship, like this one, 2019, and she had a tough time making weight. Like she, she struggled hard. Um, so I think it's if 15 minutes before they close the weigh in, she's still there trying to make the weight. She just makes it 10 minutes before. And uh, I remember going, well, wonder what's going to happen today because she she just make weight. Um, so we were on the second flight, obviously, there's two flights of 63s. So I'm moving over the first round of squats have happened. And I'm moving over, she's still not ready. I mean, she. They're working with her, they're trying to get her, she's cramped up and shit. And I'm like, I'm worried because I'm like, I, I don't want to go out there and, you know, something happens to her. I, want to, I was actually looking forward to seeing what performance she did. So then she, got out there, she went out there and I shit you not, she put on the perfect performance. She had a 514 world record total. She had a world record in the squat. And I think, she took 
the world, I think the European record day risk. And this is after just barely making, just barely making weight. She was 50 minutes away from missing the window. And then to turn that from, to turn that from that position into the best 63 total of all time. It's just crazy. It just shows you like where her mindset is. Yeah. Yeah, she's fearless, and, and it's just, this is not like an international level as well. International judging, um, you know, the live stream, the whole nine too. So it's not like doing this at a local meet or anything. But then you also have obviously um, Carla Guerra from Italy, the current world yeah. champion, who posted a. I think she had a, it was a gym total, but it was something crazy gym total as well. And then um, Sam Calhoun, who nudged past what would have been the sixty-three kilo world total. But she weighed in slightly more at the Arnold Classic um, because she didn't want it to be official because she wants to be able to have chips come the World Championships to play with um, should she need them if, if it unfolds like that. But those three are all capable of winning on any given day. Do you think of those yep. three, it's Babois? Um, I think, I think uh, she's right there. I mean... I think she's done like 525, 530 yeah. trim as well. But you can't even disregard Ivana because Ivana had her best total by, by like 10, 15 kilos. She had a 495. So, I mean, where she might be there as well. So there may be four of them in a, in a four-way battle the next time they meet. But where do you think it leaves like Jennifer Thompson if she comes back into the if she comes back into the game, does she, does she stay open or does she move to I the Masters? What's going on with Jennifer Thompson right now? Because she had some bad injuries. And, uh, yeah. and she is, I don't know where she's at now, but she won the World Championships in 2018. Coming back from an insane hip injury that the doctor said, that's that's a wrap on your career. Like you just being normal, walking around and whatnot is going to be great. You performing at a World Championship level like that, that should be a wrap, especially given her age. I think she was 43, 44 at the time. So it looked like it was going to be a wrap. Now, I haven't seen her do much squatting in training videos and whatnot. Benching and, and deading, yeah. So I'm not sure where she's at physically. And she's got to be, she's in her late 40s now. So injuries and whatnot, I don't know. If it's too much of an ask, certainly like she's won the world championships for bench press. And conceivably, everybody's like, she'll be the bench press world champion as long as she wants to be. But then you look at Gara's bench press. Yeah, it's that's, crazy. That's not even for sure. Like, Gara can write. Gara's like 25 years old. By the time Gara's in her early 30s and peaking, she might be taking Jen Thompson's bench press records, which a little while ago would have been inconceivable to even think about. You thought if ever there was a record that nobody's going to touch, it's Jen Thompson's bench press records. I'm not saying Gara's going to do it this year, but it wouldn't be crazy if you if you told me in five years' time or something like that. Because Gara's getting closer and closer. And getting stronger and stronger. I mean, it's going to be so crazy. But if she does pass, which, again, I think that she will, to see a 63 kilo open after bench upwards of 150, I mean, that's going to be insane, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and even... Her weak link, it wasn't really a weak link, but it was her weakest lift of her deadlift, and I think that she deadlifted 200 recently, so 
her squats pretty strong her batches in Siena and her deadlift is you know it's right there now with with the rest of them well not not quite as high as like like Sam's would be but it's it's decent and when you look at when you look at this game where you know that would have been her her weakest play but now it's pretty she's becoming more well-rounded every year yeah now, in terms of the in terms of battles, man, sixty threes is looking more and more close, like the seventy twos, man. Like you could flip a coin, and the top three to four could win it in the sixty threes. Certainly the top three. But you're right, Ivana Horna, who also won the world championships as well, I think in Belarus. So Belarus yeah. treats her kindly. She's capable. You know, she's definitely peaking. She's capable. She's done it before, and she's a fierce competitor as well. So who knows, man? That's definitely one of the top flight. In terms of the clashes that we're going to see in Belarus, that's one of them I'm looking forward to for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then Jim Milligan, you can't turn to her either. She's right there. You know, she she um because she's going um because the U.S. is going to be able to send two people in in one of the weight classes. It's going to be the 63s. Jennifer Milligan, actually, last time she was in Belarus, she won the world championships and the best female lifter. Yeah, so you know, Jen Mulligan is probably the best example of a, a role model, someone that you know has a busy life or a hectic life, and she makes room at the very start of the day to get her training. You know, like other people could be like, just like, yeah, I'm not going to train today, or I'll 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 double up on session. You know, later in the week, but she gets up like five, five thirty, and hits the session before work. Yeah, yeah she's got full time job, full time mother, and um, and like a multiple time world champion. She's she's like a rising grind type man. No excuses for Jennifer Milliken. That's why people say like I don't got time. You know, I got to come home from work, put the kids to bed, and all that. And like by the time it's me time, Jen's like, well, I'll just wake up way early. I'll wake up at four, get there at five. I'll do whatever I got to do. Like. Pull all breaks. She's got the heart of a lion, Jennifer Milliken. You definitely can't count out. When she was on the podcast, she had some really good introspective things that she said, like how she approaches on the mental side, how she's developed, and how when she first started competing in sports, you know, she didn't have that mental toughness she felt like. You know what I mean? And um, like sports have like helped her get better. Not just like you know they say sports reveal character, um, but sometimes you could build character off it and get tougher as you go and you level up. When you called for it, we're previously like, man, I didn't, have, I didn't even know I had that in me until I got tested like that. But uh, yeah, she's a good, good example of that. Yeah, and I think the show that her Sam and JT had Raw Nationals in 2018, I think it was, the, the SBD covered it. And they went into the, you know, the sort of the men's had said and. They watched them warm up and they watched them go through the competition and they watched like who was taking the lead off the squats, who was taking the lead off the bench and it ultimately, ultimately it came down to the, the last deadlift. You know, it was it was real, real good. Yeah, I remember the 2018 World Championships when Jen loaded up the bar for the win and it was like a huge titanic pull and it was so dramatic and um, it was like a signature performance as well for her. Like I was like probably... One of the most dramatic third attempts for the win that I had seen. Um, for anyone who's listening, if they're reaching out, do you do online coaching? Yeah. Um, so we do online coaching. You can reach us uh, normally through Instagram. 
So just like scrap versus systems. Okay. You know, uh, um, yeah, pretty much just on Instagram. And you do you do online coaching as well as you offer um, handling services? Yeah, I mean, in Ireland, we, it's just combined into one because we're still like five years. We're still only sort of getting into the game. So it's just combined into one. So it's just all the one service. Gotcha. And um, a question I always ask everybody who comes on. We're approaching a two-hour mark. Thank you very much, by the way, for your time, um, especially on this Easter weekend. But <laughs> a question I always ask everybody who comes on. When all is said and done, and you look back on your career, how do you want to be remembered? That's a good question. Um, I, I would like to be remembered for, you know, just helping people find a way. You know, when I look, when I look back on, on sport and, and the grades we've done in sport, um, and I'm, I'm a big basketball fan. Like, I would watch a lot of basketball. And, you know, they've got great stories. And, you know, we did someone like Kobe. Like, obviously, he's passed away and stuff. But what he was doing prior to passing away, like, he was giving back to the game. So he was help, He was helping his daughter's basketball team and, you know, helping them find the right path. So giving back to the community and helping people find a way into part of them and find a way to the next level because you could like you could see people that come into the sport and they they don't get they don't connect with the right people or you know they, their experience of the sport, not just part of them, any sport, could be like they try it and they don't get any attention, they don't get shown the way and they just fizzle out. But those people that Fizzle could be the next world champion, the next Kim Offer, the next Michael Jordan in basketball, you know, you can lose them for we can lose them for the same. So looking back it would probably be like helping people find the right path. Well said, my friend. And it's true. Um, when someone comes in there, yeah, they're not properly nurtured to find the right path, you can lose it. It's it's we are vying for the athletic youth. Because there's so many sports and so many options. I'm like, what if Russell or he went into like track or something like that, like a hundred meter dash or something? You know what I mean? Like this, this is what we're buying for when we're trying to get somebody. And um, yeah, you're right. Like to be the conduit and collect them and put them on the right path is big. Yeah, I, you know, God knows if we never had had games with so many people be involved in the IPF. Like you said, like in the last four years, we've seen every year that goes past, they do a report, you know, at the at the rules meeting, you know, before before the championship begins, they have a meeting and they just they, they explain like how much more growth that's happened within the sport each year, and you know when we when we look back at twenty twenty and we get beyond the virus and stuff, you you you'll see that it made it may grow more than it did last year. Um, certainly the standards grow every year because like you see it on commentary when you're at a championship, like how many, how many times have we gotten there's a world record flashing on the screen. I mean they're just getting they're just getting crazy and they're they're getting extended year on year. 
Yeah, it, it's 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 crazy to see because you, you tell yourself like eventually we got to see the cap. Like eventually, like we can't just keep seeing. It's not small growth either. Like when you see some like the when when Kimberly Walford and she still is in her prime, but doing what she's doing with the deadlift and posting up the total she's got, it's like oh my god, this is this is crazy tip of the spear type performances. And then when Angelina comes and Jessica Bittner comes, we're talking 565 now. It's like, when is this going to stop? You know, you could see a 600 kilo total. It's nuts, man. Like, who knows in the future, five years from now, if you told me, yeah, we're probably going to see 600 kilo totals in the 72s, I believe it. You know, God knows what the 84s and 84 plus is going to be doing. So, yeah, man, I know what you mean. Where every year it just keeps pushing. And it's probably because the with growth comes a talent pool that gets bigger and bigger. And then the bigger the talent pool, we get our pick of the litter of these top flight athletes. So that's when these numbers are going to start going. Yeah. I mean, in 2017, like we're in 2016, 2017, with pre-Amanda, pre-Daniela, Ilya was like an 18-pound champion in the 84s. And, you know, she was just around a 530, 540 total. People were probably saying, I wonder if we'll ever see a 550, not a 6'10, 6'15. That was just seen like a year later, a year, two years down the line, you know. So, what are we going to see in 21, 22, 23? Like, what I see is the standards going, going up the way, you know. I mean, there's just so. If, if you look at the 93 SWAT record in 2015, it was held by Leon Norton, it was 302.5. What is, what is it, man? Like Anatoly and, and Keiko and all those boys? Yeah, I got no idea, but it's insane. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's at least 20, 30 kilo more, right? I think it's 331-ish range around there, something like that. Which, yeah, it's, it's it's just fucking like 30 kilo more, which is insane to think about. And this isn't ancient history either. Yeah, you know, so and 302.5 in 2015, people were raising their eyebrows up. But if you do free two point five as a squad in ninety threes, it's just like you you'd be lucky to be in the top ten. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Top championship. Yeah, 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 I know man. It's it's scary. Like in two years, who knows where we're gonna be. It's it, the future looks bright. Listen, yeah. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Um much thank appreciated. You. Gotta have you back on the podcast and obviously we're gonna keep in contact and we'll probably be in the group chat later today. I gotta go smash some food. But uh, thank you for coming on, sir. We will keep in touch. Anybody who's looking for coaching services, reach out to my man. Is there anybody you want to thank before I let you go? Thank you for having me on. And just thank thank partisan community for everything that they do for us. And we get the opportunity to get back every single month, every single year. So that's it. Thank, thanks for having me on. You bet, my friend. There it is. Have a good one, sir. Enjoy your research. Have a good one. See you, you too. Bye. Bam. Another episode, two hours. I got to smash some food. Six-pack lab edit. Listen, if you're listening, do me a favor. Subscribe. Give us high ratings. Post up in your Instagram stories. Tell friends. Help us expand on this. Until next time, peace.